I love Alice Cooper so much, I almost don't know where to start. So let's begin with a mild criticism. Practically no one would deny that Alice Cooper, the man, and initially the band, was an innovative original. Both musically and with their image, Alice Cooper was a trailblazer. Androgyny before Bowie, makeup before Kiss, snakes before Jake Roberts, bird-related scandal before Ozzy Osbourne, and scandal in general well before the likes of Madonna and others. And that doesn't even count songs like The Ballad of Dwight Fry or I Love the Dead, well before anyone else was tackling that kind of material. But even the most ardent Cooper fan, and I'm one of them, would have to concede that over time, Alice Cooper became more of a trend chaser than a trendsetter. It arguably started with 1980's Flush the Fashion, which Alice released an obviously new wave-influenced record. It wouldn't be the last time. 1989 saw Alice present the album Trash to the World, containing the mega-successful top-ten smash single Poison. Two years later came Hey Stupid. Both records saw the father following in the footsteps of his children, as they were glam metal in sound and, frequently, lyrical content. Times changed, though, and in 2000, Alice shifted with them, releasing Brutal Planet and, a year later, Dragon Town. Both records feature a more industrial sound, where it seems as if Alice was influenced by his friend and protege, Rob Zombie. But then garage rock in the hands of artists like the White Strikes became fashionable, and in 2003, Alice returned to that sort of sound with the eyes of Alice Cooper. Now let there be no mistake, I like all of these records. I find it difficult not to see good things in Alice Records, period. I'm not a huge fan of so-called hair metal, but if more of it was as catchy as Trash's Spark in the Dark, then maybe I would be. The song Be With You A While, Off the Eyes of Alice Cooper, is such a beautiful, touching track, I used it in my wedding as one of the background songs to the video we played at our reception. Love you, Kel. I know you're listening. There's lots of other good moments on the records, too, but yeah, in total, the albums reflect Alice as more follower than leader. But, in my list of almost 15 years here of Alice records, I've omitted one. One that perhaps follows in the footsteps of those that came before, but those footsteps were more Alice's own Welcome to My Nightmare and Alice Cooper Goes to Hell. I'm talking about The Last Temptation, a 1994 masterpiece that, despite a little Chris Cornell, did not sound grunge at all. It's not Cobain, it's Stephen, Alice's old protagonist when confronting devils and other evils. It's macabre and dark, but also ultimately reflects the sober Christianity that Alice had embraced since he went to hell in the 1970s. And it's funny at times, too. It's Alice. It's kind of brilliant. And it's almost Halloween, right? What better time and topic? I'm John Pritchard, and welcome to my nightmare. Okay, welcome to Well Disguised.
Concept albums have a long and not necessarily illustrious history in rock and roll. Opinions may differ, but generally, if you give me two rock albums to listen to without telling me anything about them other than that one is a concept record and the other isn't, I'd probably choose the non-concept record every time. First of all, what is a concept record? A lot of times they're hard to describe or discern in the first place. I mean, is the Van Halen debut a concept record about girls, love, dancing, and fun? Rock operas are even more odd, at least in terms of frequency, although maybe in other ways. I suppose The Pretty Things and SF Sorrow is generally considered the first, but clearly The Who's Tommy is the most famous and most celebrated. And rock operas, or concept records, what have you, I mean, look at Kilroy Was Here by Styx, it nearly broke up the band. Concept albums are songs that are written around some sort of common theme or conceit. Rock operas seem to go a step further and have a narrative to the music, and thus the track order on an album is probably more important on a rock opera. You might then ask, Mr. Well-Disguised, why do they call them rock operas and not just musicals? I don't really know. I suppose musicals are almost always performed, whereas that isn't true of rock operas, And musicals also have other aspects of theater, namely acting and dialogue, whereas a rock opera is just the music. I don't know. To perform most rock operas, I think you would need some dialogue and acting, but then again, I've never called a performance of Tommy. Maybe I should rectify that. Anyway, Alice has had several of both. For example, School's Out doesn't tell a story at all, necessarily, but to me it clearly seems to be a concept album about high school and youth culture. It even has a West Side Story element in the song Gutter Cat vs. the Jets, and ends then actually with a bang, an alma mater, and then the instrumental grand finale. From the Inside is a more pure example. In the 1970s, Alice clearly became a total alcoholic, among other substances he was overly fond of, and getting him some treatment was probably a good idea. Putting him in an asylum in New York, though? Not the right place. However, plenty of good came out of it, as every song on the record from the inside was based on his experiences and the truly mentally ill people there. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there are others. I certainly consider Brutal Planet a concept album, for instance. But Alice has several concept records that border heavily on rock operas as well. Late period Alice gave us Along Comes a Spider, about a serial killer, for example. But more pertinent is the famous Welcome to My Nightmare. Released in 1975, Welcome to My Nightmare tells the story of Alice's frequently used protagonist, Stephen, and the nightmares he faces over the course of one, or perhaps many nights. The album also features a spoken word portion by the legendary cinematic horror actor Vincent Price, nearly a decade before he showed up on Thriller. Stephen's adventures would continue in Alice's next record, cleverly titled Goes to Hell. So when you're looking at the album cover, it reads... Alice Cooper Goes to Hell. You definitely have to bend your brain a little to follow the story, and I've always been amused that the after the first and best song on the record, Go to Hell, the second track is the disco number, You Gotta Dance. Alice claims, of course, for him, Hell would feature disco or disco music. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because it was not released as a single, but I've always been at least a little suspicious that was Alice's excuse to go for a more mainstream hit. To be fair to Alice again, though, rock was far more mainstream in 1976 than it is in 2020, and the ballad I Never Cry 
off that record, peaked at number 12 on the Billboard singles charts. Going back to Welcome to My Nightmare, though, if you were confused about the storyline of that album, a lot of that would surely have been cleared up by The Nightmare, the special featuring Alice in the role of Stephen in a dramatic performance that played on television. There's no such theatrical version of The Last Temptation. However, there was something else, maybe even more useful at telling the album's story, or at least it could have been more useful. That's a comic book, a three-issue run, to be more precise, and written by Neil Gaiman of the legendary Sandman series. The first issue of the series was sold along with the CD. For issues two and three, you'd have to seek those out on your own. I suppose that means that only comic book geeks and incredible Alice fans read the whole story. While I've been a dedicated Alice fan for decades now, and you could only call me a comic book geek for relatively short stretches of my life, so I was one of those that never finished the story. However, like many comic book runs, the series was collected in what's called a trade paperback, and then several years later, a deluxe hardback version was released. Due in no small part to the dedication I have to the dozens of well-disguised listeners out there, I recently purchased the hardback and read it. To complicate matters further for myself, my wife has a tradition that around October of every year she reads a scary book. A few years ago, I decided I would try to join her in this endeavor. Now, neither of us particularly enjoys being scared, so we definitely moderate the level of horror or suspense we're into so that it isn't impossible to fall asleep at night. Anyway, this year I decided to read Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. I had never seen the movie, even though as a kid I feel like I remember it being on HBO constantly. But Something Wicked This Way Comes seemed to me a well-timed choice, not just for general Halloween purposes, but also because while I didn't know exactly what it was about, I knew enough to suspect it was an influence on Alice, Neil Gaiman, or both. That suspicion was at least partially correct, I think. In the introduction to the collected version of the comics, Gaiman wrote an essay and it was written in 1995, about how they came about and his impression of them that included a direct quote of Bradbury. It comes from October Country, though, not something wicked this way comes. Both stories involve young boys being tempted by sinister vaudeville figures. In Something Wicked This Way Comes, it's a carnival that comes to town, while Gaiman writes of the theater of the real, where an Alice-looking figure tempts Stephen into an old theater that doesn't seem to exist to anyone else other than Stephen, and even then only at a certain time. In the comic, then, the evil Alice is more showman than the carnival barker of something wicked this way comes. That says, in the first song on the album, Sideshow, Alice seems to be singing about a carnival rather than the theater that Gaiman presents. He sings about, I pay to see the freaks, some finger-licking chicken-eating geek, Hey, that sounds cool to me. I just want to step inside. I want a scary ride. I need a sideshow. Some kind of creep show. Anyway, I'm not a literary critic, or I'm barely a music critic, really. I could spend a lot of time comparing and contrasting the albums, the comic, and the book, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and now I've seen the movie. Again, without getting into all the differences, I'll just say that the comic... The Last Temptation, and its performance theater, and then the books, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Traveling Carnival, 
both attempt to lure children with means of manipulating time, whether it be keeping them children forever or quickly advancing them to adulthood. It's an interesting dichotomy. However, the difference I spoke of between the first song Sign Show, with its talk of scary rides and hunchback midgets, versus Gaiman's version of a creepy theater with walking, talking corpses everywhere, does probably speak to a difference in vision between Alice and Neil. Alice the songwriter just does sound more like what happens in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Gaiman's tale is three issues long, and probably should have been five for five acts instead. Stephen doesn't really struggle in Gaiman's tale with the theater master's offer, but also doesn't really win in the end either. He escapes the cabaret, but doesn't seem victorious in any meaningful way. And the story is just a creepy one, without religious overtones. Alice, on the other hand, is relatively well known as a born-again Christian. His father was a preacher, his grandfather an evangelist. Alice admits going away from that upbringing as he struggled with alcohol, cocaine, and other substances before turning to God to overcome them. Now he admits reading the Bible and attending church. Knowing that, it's hard to believe he didn't see The Last Temptation, itself a name steeped with religious overtones, as a struggle between Stephen and the devil, not merely some supernatural, top-hatted, child-taking theater owner. I don't know much about Gaiman, who has gone on to even greater success, but his villain goes out of his way on more than one occasion to tell Stephen he does not want the boy's soul. He's not that guy. Alice's villain, though, seems to be playing for greater stakes. That's as good a place as any to move on to the album itself. Again, Sideshow is the first track and sets the stage, if you'll pardon the pun. Sideshow is the introduction to a hard rock metal album, completely free of grunge overtones. Released in July 1994, it is far more use your illusion than super unknown, even if Chris Cornell was involved. Sideshow has classic Cooper topical humor, with Alice rhyming the show with the kinds of things he's looking for, like where the neon glows, or a psychedelic video, but definitely not a 90210. No, I love Alice. Also, and now really moving on from the comic, Alice's Stephen is the one talking about wanting a sideshow, a more interesting life, and that's different than Gaiman's villain who presents the idea to Stephen. Nothing's Free, the second track, is probably the best one on the record. Sung from the villain's perspective, it rocks, it drives, and it has some of the best lyrics of Alice's career, with Christian overtones way better than Striper, despite kind of giving the devil's version. Alice sings, Bow to me if you want to be free. Free from life, come die with me. And when we're dead, it's for eternity. Really good stuff there. Next is Lost in America, the closest there is to a hit on this record, partially due to a positive review, in quotes, uh, by Beavis and Butthead on the old MTV show. No other song off The Last Temptation has been done live since 1999, but there's a good chance you might hear Lost in America at an Alice show these days. I've heard it several times. The jokey lyrics are pure Cooper and certainly spoke to the post-recession youth of 1994. Bad Place Alone the song that makes clear Stephen probably shouldn't have gotten involved in all this, is a rock song made for Broadway. You can just hear the ghouls and undead of the album's world reaching out to Stephen 
and telling him of his faith, dead on the streets. I mean, yeah, the song is gnarly. For instance, quote, I know about the pain, dying in an alley with an air-conditioned brain. But it's also meant to be a big, coursey dance number. At least in my mind, anyway. But it's hard to hear the use of the word we and the ghouls talking about being broken and beaten and cut and sliced and diced and put on ice and all those things um, at the end of it there that doesn't say this is a number for Broadway or off-Broadway or something. So no misses so far, but You're My Temptation is a step back from the first four songs. Still, it continues, with or without a comic, to tell the story. The antagonist showman is getting to Stephen through a woman, apparently named Mercy. Alice sings, you fool me with your angel face. Your master knows where I'm my weakest. This idea that it was a woman who targeted Stephen the best surely rings a bell with a lot of Alice's audience. Stolen Prayer is next and picks the beat back up. Co-written by Soundgarden man Chris Cornell, this song sees Stephen at his lowest, believing his prayers are not being heard. It also features Chris coming in and sharing vocal duties, going back and forth with Alice, seemingly in the role of the devil. I think sometimes it's easy to maybe think that Alice has a weaker, a little stranger voice than most others in rock and roll. And then you hear this track, or you hear him dueling with Axl Rose on The Garden, or Steven Tyler on Only My Heart Talking, and you realize Alice Cooper's got a lot of vocal talent. It's not just songwriting, and it's not just image and showmanship. I mean, no one accuses guys like Cornell of not having pipes right, and Alice is right there bringing it to him. Unholy War was solely written by Cornell and is the seventh song on the album. It's the worst track, unfortunately. Coincidentally or not, it's also the heaviest. Lullaby, the eighth track, it's interesting, though. Stephen begins singing of his childhood with Alice in a child's voice about his secure life as a child before he heard noises that scared him, with the showman then coming in and confirming that he is the one that growls in your closet and he's the one who lives under your bed. Thus, in Lullaby, the showman is confirming that he is the scary guy, the scary thing that scares kids. But Stephen doesn't want him around. In comic, Alice fashion, he references the exorcist when he tells the demon, you can take your whiskey-soaked, foaming-at-the-mouth, toilet-talking, pea-soup-spewing, sweaty-blood-demon breath out of my face. Now, on the lyric site Genius.com, a user with the name AgentCat04 writes that the penultimate song, It's Me, is where, and I'm quoting here, the showman tells Stephen that no matter where Stephen is, the showman will always haunt him and that Stephen will never hide from his sin, end quote. I suppose that's one interpretation, but I'm pretty sure it's wrong. If anything, that interprets the game in graphic novel. But this is a ballad. It's me's a ballad, where Alice even once sang, You broke my heart to pieces, babe, but that's nothing strange. And my eyes are still wide open, girl, to catch you when you fall. No, to the extent that it fits into the story, my guess is that it's me. It's Stephen singing to Mercy the girl from You're My Temptation who was presented to him by this devilish figure. Stephen is singing about however screwed up she is, and with the background of this story, she's got to be screwed up somehow. 
Stephen's going to work with her and look out for her. It's really kind of a touching, lovely track. The album and story close with Cleansed by Fire, one of the finest tracks on the record. Stephen rejects the showman and rejects his offer of the world and all its wealth, a life eternally, and drink to my health. But Stephen sees the showman as Satan, saying, quote, Do you think I don't know who you are, a fallen star? Stephen and the devil go back and forth at the end until Stephen tells him, It's over. You have no power. You're lost. And I'm found. And I'm heaven bound. Before a final, go to hell. Which is great, because as I discussed, Alice has another record specifically called Alice Cooper Goes to Hell. That's one of the great things about Alice. If you're into Striper, or if you're into Marilyn Manson, there's only one side to pull for. With Alice, everybody gets a fair shake. I say that jokingly, but this really is one of Alice's finest records. It's fun, it's eminently listenable, and if you can get through Unholy War, each track is going to want to make you listen to the next track. I don't mean to slag off Gaiman either. Maybe someday, when I interview Alice, he will tell me Gaiman captured his vision completely. But I doubt it. And that's okay. It's why I don't miss the old MTV where they played videos. Generally, I like the videos and stories in my head better than the ones Hollywood spat out at me. This probably is not Alice's best album. But it's really good. And he's really good at this morality thing. Alice's concept records on everyday man and evil are some of his finest. So many people just think of Alice as this schlock rocker with the eye makeup. And at times in his career, maybe he was. But Alice is consistently a smart, clever songwriter. There's a reason why Bob Dylan, that Bob Dylan, when interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine in 1978 and asked what other music he was into, said he wasn't listening to New Wave, but responded, I think Alice Cooper is an overlooked songwriter. Frank Sinatra covered Alice. Alice hung out with Salvador Dali and was discovered by Frank Zappa. He even formed a legendary drinking club at the Rainbow Bar and Grill in Hollywood where he was president, but Keith Moon and Ringo Starr were also members. As Harold Bloom wrote, Greatness recognizes greatness and is shadowed by it. Alice Cooper is a great musician, and even if it's not where you start with his catalog, The Last Temptation is well worthy of your time. Thank you for listening to Well Disguised, episode 11, hard to believe. I urge you, as I usually do, rate, review, subscribe, that sort of thing. Follow me on Twitter. I suppose I should take just a moment to talk about Eddie Van Halen. My last episode about It's Only Rock and Roll, the album by the Rolling Stones, came out, well, two weeks before this one, on Tuesday, October 6th. And that's the day that we lost Eddie Van Halen. I'm not the biggest Van Halen fan in the world. I'm not the biggest Eddie Van Halen fan in the world. I certainly didn't know the man or any members of his family. The closest I came to that is was sharing a room together, that room being the Greensboro Coliseum. However, Eddie Van Halen is a hugely important music figure. And when I think about Van Halen, especially that early Van Halen, I'm reminded a little bit of VH1 television. 
specifically, you know, they BH1 used to have those shows about music and rock and roll and Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister was on one of those talking about Bon Jovi and Living on the Prayer video and how John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambor and the other guys were smiling so much. And I remember, you know, this must have been 15, 20 years ago, Dee Snyder saying, you don't smile in rock and roll. And I thought he was right for a long time. And then I remembered all those early Van Halen videos. And those guys had huge smiles on their face. And why the heck not? Van Halen, that early Van Halen, even though there's two guys in the band with the last name Van Halen, the band sort of really was about David Lee Roth. It was about his lifestyle. It was about his ethics, such as they were, morals and what he was interested in. And it's not particularly complicated. This is not progressive rock. It's not jazz. Eddie Van Halen was that kind of genius. And so if David Lee Roth lyrically kind of drew a small box, Eddie Van Halen said, I'm going to rage in that box. I'm going to push out as far as I can. And he loved it. He didn't play like some guitar shredders where it was just all about the talent and showing how fast he could play. Eddie Van Halen always served the song. And that's one of the reasons Van Halen has this legion of great pop songs that are going to be left in their wake. I mean, they're rock, but they're poppy too. You can listen to them. There's a reason why Michael Jackson asked him to play on Thriller. Again, Eddie Van Halen's not my favorite, and even that style is not necessarily my favorite. I I tend to prefer the, the bluesier players like Jimmy Page and Richie Blackmore and some of the guys that came before him. But I recognize the huge impact that Eddie Van Halen made on rock and roll. There's someone for Jimi Hendrix to take guitar lessons from now. Rest in peace, Eddie. See you guys in a couple weeks.